Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I sit down with Cliff Grow, a longtime advocate for the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, more commonly known as the PFD. He was there in 1982 when then-Governor Jay Hammond put the Permanent Fund into the Alaska Constitution and was instrumental in the creation of the PFD. There's a very important distinction between those two, the Permanent Fund and the Permanent Fund dividend. One is the collection of Alaska oil wealth, while the other is the yearly payout to Alaska residents. In addition to his work with the PFD, he was involved in the adoption of legislation that changed Alaska's oil tax system. Okay, time to shout out the crude company men. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska. As always, and I know I say it every single episode, but thank you so much for your support. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. By all of you, I mean everyone who subscribes to the Crude Patreon. Patreon is how this independent podcast is able to keep chugging along. So if you'd like to support Crude, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. A review on iTunes also helps out a lot. It lets people know that this is a thoughtful, quality piece of journalism. So back to Cliff Grow. This guy knows a lot about dividends and their short-term and long-term effects on local economy. Among many other things, we talk about the benefit of instituting a broad-based tax in Alaska and if Alaska suffers from a resource curse. The discovery of the supergiant Prudhoe Bay oil field in the late 1960s changed Alaska's economy and government. It also started a heated conversation that continues to this day. Generally, one side believes the PFD is a government handout, while the other believes that money belongs to the people of Alaska. I did my best to keep up on this one. Here's Cliff Grow. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Okay, Cliff, you were working on your radio voice, or your podcast voice. Well, I could do a variety of voices, Cody. <laughs> I, can, I can do the world's most conceited man. Is that what that is? That was the one persona that I use. Another I could do is I could, of course, do the croak. <laughs> the croak? Is the that what we call it? Talk like this. <laughs> it's more limited, only for limited time on that one, so to harden your voice. So anyway, just trying to be entertaining and interesting enough for you. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> so, and, your, and your audience, Mr. Liska. I, I'm excited about this one. You know, I um, took a lot of notes for this one, so I'm, uh, I'm going to try my best to keep up. I'll do my best to be, as I said, uh, entertaining and informative for you, Mr. Liska. Well, you already did the voices, so. There you go. Just trying. So we'll be talking a lot about the Alaska Permanent Fund and the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend in this conversation. Correct. So to listeners who might not know who you are, why should we listen to you? I'm a little insulted by the question, but I'll try to get a, a vault over that initial reaction. And I wouldn't ask you that question if I didn't know you could handle it. Yeah, I think I can handle it. I have a number of credentials that perhaps make me uh, worthy of people's time to listen to uh, about uh, Alaska fiscal matters in particular. I'm one of the small handful of people most responsible for creating, in 1982, the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend Alaska has today. Uh, that was probably my most fun and, uh, and interesting job I've ever had in my life. Um, Later in that decade, in 1989, I served, and later in, from 1987 to 1990, I served as uh, the Special Assistant of the Commissioner of Revenue um, in the administration of Governor Steve Cooper, and the Commissioner of Revenue then being Hugh Malone. 
and I was uh, heavily involved in the adoption of legislation that substantially changed Alaska's oil tax system, in particular uh, raised some taxes uh, on uh, the uh, profitable fields at Prudhoe Bay and Kapark on Alaska's North Slope. And that particular tax change raised between 5 and 10% of the state's general fund revenues for a period of years, or generated such revenues, that amount of revenues for a period of years. Additionally, I have been a board member of Alaska Common Ground for more than 20 years and chair between 2014 and mid-2018. And in that capacity, I have presented at, moderated, served as a panelist on uh, dozens of Alaska, uh, f events about Alaska's fiscal challenge. I have traveled the state, um, given a number of presentations, not only in Anchorage, but in such far-flung venues as um, Palmer, Wasilla, uh, um, Soldatna, uh, Juneau, and Fairbanks. So like I said, I hope I can add some value. Yeah, I think you can. <laughs> that sounds like quite the, quite the resume, dude. I probably should also add that um, I uh, ran for public office. I ran um, for the Alaska State House in the Democratic primary last summer and finished second in a three-candidate field. As you kind of alluded to, uh, you were there for the creation of the, the permanent fund. Let's be really careful, Cody. Okay. I was heavily involved in the creation of the permanent fund dividend. Okay, the PFD. I had a very tiny role in the creation of the permanent fund as one of tens of thousands of Alaskans who voted for the permanent fund. And we need to distinguish those two Alaska institutions carefully because they're frequently confused in the public mind. And this is the permanent fund and the permanent, the permanent fund, fund dividend. dividend. Yes. The permanent fund is a... Uh, a uh, savings device or mechanism that was created by the people of Alaska through the adoption of a constitutional amendment in 1976. I voted for that constitutional amendment, but I was one of tens of thousands of Alaskans who did so. That, so I had a pretty small role. Um, six years later, the uh, Alaska legislature created, with the substantial uh, aid of uh, Governor then Governor Jay Hammond, the um, per capita permanent fund dividend we had today have today. Um, I was the legislative staff member for the Alaska State Legislature who worked by far the most um, on that legislation, more than, uh, by far more than any other, and was one of the small handful of people, as I said before, who helped create the permanent fund dividend we have today. So that would be an important distinction between the permanent fund and the permanent fund dividend and Cliff Grove's relative roles in the creation of each. What was happening in the 70s and early 80s that made Governor Jay Hammond put the permanent fund into the Alaska Constitution? Well, okay, Governor Hammond had a big role in the creation of the permanent fund, but technically it required the, the work of the Alaska legislature and the uh, consent of the Ala uh, majority of the Alaska voters to do this, because that's what it takes to get a constitutional amendment um, put into place. Um, in the late 1960s, the supergiant Prudhoe Bay oil field was discovered in Alaska's North Slope, and that very much changed Alaska's economy and government. Um, it, it, due to... The discovery of that oil field, some taxes and royalties the state of Alaska got from the development of that oil and some other oil on the North Slope, and a giant increase in, in the price of the world price of oil in the 1970s, the petrodollar bonanza in Alaska was substantially larger than people thought it would be. But people worried that it would not be spent uh, appropriately. And so uh, in the middle of you know, the year before the uh, pipeline actually was finished, uh, which is in the first oil flow through the pipeline in August 1977, but the year before that in 1976, um, the legislature, with the uh, urging of Governor Hammond, put on the ballot a constitutional amendment to create a permanent fund. And that 
the voters approved that permanent fund, um, put it in the Constitution. We've had it since then. It's important to note that the permanent fund um, was a device that, as a mandatory matter, um, saves 25% of the oil royalties. Some other categories, but the big category that it saves money from is oil royalties. It saves 25% of the royalties. But it's critical to note, Cody, that the state of Alaska gets revenues um, from oil development, both from royalties on oil and from taxes on oil. Mm-hmm. And together, the, the the money coming from royalties on oil and t- taxes on oil is combined into the oil re- revenues. The taxes and the royalties are different um, legal uh, matters, stand in substantially different legal foundations. And uh, while people have the rate, the, the word 25% or the phrase 25% is a rate, they don't think about the base. So it's critical to note the permanent fund gets, as a mandatory matter, 25% of the oil royalties, not all the oil revenues. Okay. Those are, that's a sh- short statement of the motivation for the creation of the permanent fund. Now, to state that a little bit more, and it's been written about a lot recently, and I've written about this, the permanent fund was essentially created with a negative goal. I mean, there were a lot of purposes thrown around for it, why we were saving money. That's, frankly, Cody, one of the reasons it passed, so that it could be sort of all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Everything from dams to, to daycare centers to dividends was dangled in front of the people of Alaska as some of the ways the permanent fund uh, might be used for. So the best thing you can say is that the, the permanent fund was intended to save money for the future. And it was not completely clear um, what the saving would be for, but it would at least prevent um, the spending of all of the petrodollar bonanza and uh, oil uh, uh, wealth from the boom from being spent in you know, just one generation, which is the thinking. Mm-hmm. And so you said you refer to it as a negative goal? What, what do you that mean by that? That was a phrase that the first chair of the uh, Alaska Permanent Fund Board of Trustees, Omar Rasmussen, used, a prominent banker and well-known wise man. Of the uh, Rasmussen Foundation? Correct. Okay. He would be the prime mover there. Um, he's no longer with us, but he was a prominent figure in Alaska in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, in particular, and 80s. And he said the permanent fund started chiefly with a negative goal, which was to prevent uh, all the money from, from the oil boom from being spent. So the, na- the phrase negative goal comes from Elmer Rasmussen. Being spent outside of Alaska? No, in one generation or really quickly. Okay, okay. If you save money, it will slow down this, uh, you know, it will prevent the money from all being spent, you know, quickly. Okay. But it doesn't tell you, when you save money, Cody, it doesn't tell you what to, necessarily what you're saving it for. Yeah. <laughs> and I often say that two of the most important questions in Alaska are, number one, what is the permanent fund for? And the other one is a very different one, but also very important is, how long do you personally tend to live in Alaska? Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about some of the answers to those questions that you've gotten. Sure. Um, what is the permanent fund for? Well, people say everything. I said before, dams to di- daycare centers to, di- to, to dividends. Um, and there's obviously a big divide between people who think the permanent fund is for saving for a rainy day and other people who think that uh, the permanent fund might be used more for like investment. Some people think the permanent fund should be used to uh, uh, finance a, a natural gas pipeline, right? That would be yeah. you know, another you know use uh, and that some you know, um, significant group of Alaskans have talked about. Yeah. So I interviewed you back in December for an article I wrote for the BBC sure. about the PFD. And I'm not sure if you realized it at the time, but I took like three pages of notes. Okay. Uh, mostly follow-up questions and interesting side notes. Sure. 
things that weren't relevant to that article. Sure. But that I'd like to bring up here. I'm, I'm, I'm all ears and ready to go. <laughs> all right. Raring to go. <laughs> um, so one thing you said that I thought was interesting was one of the big factors in the increase in Alaska oil prices was the fall of the Shah in Iran in 1979. To be technically true, the increase in world oil prices. Okay. Uh, oil prices, they're not, not every, you know, just like not every car sells for just the same amount, but there's a general trend in sort of like, you know, the, you know there's a, uh, there's a general trend in world oil prices, but but that but the the Alaska made money because of the rise in the 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 rise in, the, in Alaska's oil prices, but that followed the general increase in oil prices, world oil prices. Okay, and you said that it was a, a major geopolitical factor, Absolutely. and it helped increase instability in the Middle East and drive Alaska oil prices up. And world oil prices, which Alaska would definitely be part of the world. Can we talk a little bit more about that? About sure. how um, I don't I don't think at least. I didn't think about something happening in the Middle East. Obviously, I wasn't around in 1979, but something happening that was a in fun the year. <laughs> something happening in the Middle East um, having an immediate effect on Alaska. And I guess it's kind of a no-brainer if you think about oil, right? Um, well, more recently during your lifetime, Cody, um, there have been techniques developed in fracking and horizontal drilling that have helped make it possible to get a lot more oil out of a lot of places in lower 48. That has created downward pressure. On, it's created more oil in the, you know, the oil supply, and as a result, created downward pressure in oil prices. So there are factors that happen a long way from Alaska or changes that are you know, uh, occurring right, you know, a whole bunch of miles from our state that can, can have big effects here in Alaska. The fall of the Shah of Iran uh, helped trigger a boom in oil prices because of, like I said, instability in the Middle East and concerns in the world oil market at a time when the Middle East was a bigger player in the world oil market than it is today. Now you've had more oil found in more other places and also critically, not just oil found, but more recoverable oil found through, like I said, developments in technology like fracking and horizontal drilling. And you mentioned that oil um, is being found in other places. Does that mean, does that make Alaska a little less special? Well. Alaska is somewhat less special in the world oil market, both because some oil is found in other places, but also because we have less recoverable oil than we used to. Mm -hmm. The big field, particularly the, the biggest field by far ever found in Alaska, was Prudhoe Bay, and that has been in decline in terms of producing less and less oil for a number of years. And how much oil was found there? Um, originally, I think it was like 9 billion barrels of oil, and so we, it's been in decline for a number of years. The sort of the better way to understand in terms of Alaska's overall picture is the total volume of oil going through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, or TAPS, which is by far the great majority of the oil that's been produced in the United States, in, in Alaska, right? There's a little bit of some oil that's come out of the Cook Inlet, but that's very much a smaller percentage. So the big, the big place for oil in Alaska has been Alaska's North Slope. And the pipeline, like I said, started flowing in August of 1977. It reached a peak about 10, 11, and 12 years later in the late 1980s when more than 2 billion barrels of oil per day were going through the pipeline. And now, Cody, what are we at now, Here, sitting here in 2019? How much? About 500,000 barrels of, of oil a day go through the pipeline. So we've lost about three quarters of the production since the peak. Oh, and the big, the big player by far has been Prudhoe Bay. It's just like this workhorse that you know, gave up most of the oil in an earlier time. And so what does that mean to the economy of Alaska? Well, it's a negative factor, right? In the sense, well, 
You say economy, we got to talk about it in two different ways. One is it takes way more people to build a pipeline than to operate it. It was particularly true for the oil pipeline. You know, there were a lot of people, you know, tens of thousands, you know, who helped build the pipeline. But it doesn't take that many to run it, right? So that was an important thing. There are also people working on North Slope, you know, looking for oil. I mean, there are a few sort of like people running meters and some look for oil. But there's just not as much employment as there used to be. But the other factor is, is that the state's fiscal system was designed to run on having a lot of oil money. And now there's just way less, both because of this long-run production decline, like I said, from uh, more than 2 million barrels a, a day going through the pipeline in the late 1980s to only around 500,000 barrels a day to today, but also because of the oil prices have bounced around a lot, and they're substantially lower than they were in, in the summer of 2014. That time I know you'll remember. <laughs> you don't remember 1939, but you yeah. zeroed in on that summer of 2014. <laughs> I, I actually don't even know if I was here. Uh, you were alive, clearly. I was alive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> clearly. I'm thinking pretty conscious as well. I'm just yes. guessing. I was very cognitive. <laughs> yeah, right. So are there are there any myths or kind of straight up falsehoods about the, the PFD that you regularly have to dispel? Um, one would be that it's guaranteeing the last constitution. That's not true. But I think it's probably more useful to start out at why, why it was created, if that's helpful. Yeah, let's do it. All right. And I wrote the arguments that were most frequently made for it, or I collected all the ones I could uh, in 1982 when I was helping to get the, the permafin dividend bill passed. I wrote them down. I'm the person who, uh, like I said, one of the small handful of people who helped create the permafin dividend. And I'm the person who's written the most about how it was created because much was about writing about what I was doing and other people around me were doing and the small handful of people. Sure. So let's go through about half dozen arguments that were made for the adoption of the permafin dividend in 1982. So we have to start out in 1980, there was an original permanent fund dividend put, put together and put on the, in the statute books that ne- to which never a penny got paid. That was the longer here, the more you get plan. By the way, that's not t- where you'd find it called in the statute books. That was the Cliff Grove description of it. That would be my name for it. Yeah. Um, it was based essentially in durational residency. And under the original plan, um, I would have been a maximum recipient, whereas somebody who just arrived that first year would get like one to you know, less than 5% of what I got. So what kind of amounts are we we talking about here? Like if, if that it was went like 21 through... Ty- it started out with 21 classes and I would have been the highest receiving classes making 21 times as much as the person who just arrived. Okay, and, and about how much, if you were to look at that in today's payout... I don't remember what it was, but there was a big different distinction, you know, based on how long you've lived here and it, it, it created at least 21 classes to start. Okay. Now that is sort of less interesting to talk about because it got struck down by the United States Supreme Court. And so while it was that that lawsuit was wending its way through the courts and actually reached the United States Supreme Court, I and some, a few other, some other people became sort of understood that it was highly possible and probably improbable, actually, the United States Supreme Court would strike down that plan because it violated, its, and on the, on the basis that it violated the United States Constitution. And Governor Hammond was term limited his last year he could serve as governor was 1982. So um, I worked together with a small group of other people to put together what we called backstop litigation that would go into effect with a per capita dividend um, paid on a you know per person basis if the original longer here more you get plan was struck down uh, or invalidated by the United States Supreme Court. So I worked very hard on that um, in the uh, uh, first half of 1982. 
And so the arguments that were made for the creation of, of a, a permanent fund dividend paid on per capita basis in 1982 were this half dozen. First would be that permanent fund dividends would help build a political constituency to protect and grow the permanent fund principle on the logic, Cody, of the bigger the permanent fund, the bigger the permanent fund dividend. Okay. All right. It would help protect against dangerous or un unwise investments because they would be seen as wasting the principle and so they would create, you know, the, the potential or likelihood of smaller permanent fund dividends. A second argument made for permanent fund dividends in 1982 was that economic analysis showed that permanent fund dividends would provide greater economic bang for the buck than the alternatives of spending that same amount of money on the operating budget or the capital budget or on loans to residents. I want to stress that low interest loans were a big thing in the state then, provided by the state, particularly for basically businesses. And this was particularly valuable to the people who received those loans, Cody, because the interest rates were so high then. It's hard for younger people to sort of understand just, you know, that the interest rates, the prime interest rate, I think, was about 14%. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking here at my notes, and I remember um, you said something about this before, and you told me that the state low-interest loan programs were a giant subsidy to wealthier, higher-income people who tended to be more powerful. Absolutely true. All co absolutely correct. So that, what that guy you interviewed back a few months ago was really smart. <laughs> very informative yeah i think you like him yeah. <laughs> so you you um what does that do to the overall economics of a state when you have wealthier people benefiting from from things like that um it's sort of weird it's more like a third world country um this is sort of what we call sometimes it's called uh the resource curse and it's a bad effect of uh, uh you know things like oil wealth could you explain the resource curse really quick? Yeah. The resource curse is, is that if you have um, oil wealth in particular, which is a higher value natural resource, and the government and the economy tend to rely on it, it tends to have a warping effects in that people don't want to do other things. They don't want to like start manufacturing plants or go into other kinds of businesses. And they sort of try to just try to figure out ways to grab off the rents or the high um, uh, profit margins that come from the oil. And it leads to stunted economic growth and uh, to corruption. And it has had some demonstrably bad Political effects. corruption? Yeah. And Alaska, of course, is no stranger to that. Okay. We've actually had legislators go to prison um, for their crimes they committed in office. Really? Okay. Hard to believe that now, but it's true. And, there were and several. Can you give some examples? Well, sure. Um, there were, you know, three uh, come to bat right after mine who actually went to prison. The brothers were convicted. But three who went to prison include the former Speaker of the House, uh, Representative Peacott of uh, uh, Chugiak, Eagle River areas, um, Representative Vic Coring from the Amatsu Valley, and uh, uh, Representative T Tom Anderson from Anchorage um, all went to federal prison. For? Pub uh, public corruption for crimes oh, okay. committed in office. Not all directly involving um, oil money, but some of it. Um, with the, the Cot and Coring went to prison for their um, connection, their associations within crimes committed with VICO executives, uh, Bill Allen and Rick Smith. Yeah, yeah. It seems like um, when you have when you have that temptation, when there's a lot of money. Yeah, and um, people need to think really clearly, um, especially in the current context 
uh, about Alaska's vulnerability to corruption. And also Tom Anderson went to uh, prison for uh, public crimes associated with public corruption, associated with a juvenile facility. So it wasn't directly oil. What do you mean by uh, think about our, our current situation? We have to watch out for a number of things. We have to make some really clear choices um, and understand that there are very much trade-offs involved. And we um, also need to be wary of the siren call of privatization, particularly of some certain functions of government that should be privatized, in my view, like prisons, um, juvenile imprisonment facilities, or um, a state mental health hospital. I think that those things should be run and have public accountability that is brought best by being run by the government, not by a private entity. And you're referring to uh, API being privatized. Right. And some discussion of private, you know, uh, prisons, you know, sending some of Alaska's prisoners to private prisons. Corruption tends to follow private prisons around. Okay. And it's also, I think, bad for democratic accountability. So it's bad on both those scores. In what way? Um, well, the corruption is, I've just, just seen a lot of people go to prison over things like uh, private prisons because it just leads to no bid contracts and, and there's just this high profit margin and you just, you just over and over again around the country, you find private prisons associated with corruption. And the second is a more philosophical problem of lack of demo, uh, reduction of democratic accountability by having a private company making important, you know, sort of life and death decisions in some cases um, uh, over people that are in the custody of the state government that are, that are not, in fact, employees of the state government, but employees of a, some private facility that's a private uh, profit-seeking. Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed someone a while back that had just gotten out of prison, and they said that uh, before they went, they didn't realize that, in their words, it was kind of a racket in that they are constantly transferring prisoners to other to other uh, prisons, and those places, those other prisons that they're transferring to get a certain break, or there's money involved in transferring prisoners. And so you kind of see them hopscotching around to these different I don't prisons. doubt it. I don't doubt that. That I don't know that particular example, but I, I do know that, like I said, corruption follows private prisons around. Okay. So um, just what you see this, like I said, looking around the country, and... It wasn't a prison, but a private you know, facility for juveniles and it led one of our state legislators uh, to go to prison um, here in Alaska. So let's see, if you want to go back to the permafed dividend, then I would sort of maybe steer more toward like a more general discussion of our current situation. But the history of the permafed dividend, I think, might be useful and interesting to the audience. Absolutely. So keep going. We talked about the argument of building a political situation for permafed dividend. We talked about the argument of um, uh, economic analysis showing that dividends would provide a greater economic bang for the buck than the alternatives, uh, ways of spending the money or using the money. Relatedly, there was an argument that dividends would deliver benefits more efficiently than other methods of using the oil wealth. Um, If you're trying to get the oil wealth out to the public and you're going to say, well, we'll we'll raise salaries of state employees or we're going to build a new road to Dillingham, right? Or a road to Dillingham. There not being any road there to Dillingham now. Sure. Um, you, we have a lot of what, what economists would call leakage. Like, you know, not all the employees that you'd hire, right, new would be like come, you know, have gone to, like we come from Alaska, someone would come from outside the state. But if you pay money directly to residents, sort of by definition, the money goes, at least in the first order, all to, you know, residents. Who so, will spend it here locally. Yeah, not some argument there's some leakage there too, but at least there's not, you're not buying concrete 
to build a building, you know, in the UAA campus, you're not buying the, the, the construction supplies from Oregon, mm-hmm. right? Which would sometimes occur if you're doing that, for example, in terms of, you know, trying to boost the capital budget to stimulate the economy. Then additionally, this is a more philosophical argument, another argument that was made, was that individuals have a right, a right to use a portion of the state of Alaska's oil wealth, which the Alaska Constitution states in Article 8 of the Constitution sh- shall be utilized, quote, for the maximum benefit of, unquote, Alaskans. This is obviously a controversial argument, but some people, you know, believe it and um, say that that is a reason in, uh, for the existence of profound dividends. Um, another argument was more based on equity. The dividends would provide benefits more equitably than other methods of using, using oil wealth. We've already talked about the, the sort of unequal effects of low interest loans um, that for businesses in particular, because most Alaskans don't have their own businesses. And uh, that was another argument that was made. So the idea is that, that Alaskans benefit the most by giving them the money directly. At least some portion of it. Um, I would also note that Alaska has either the first or second most equal um, distribution of um, income in the United States of any state. I think we swap places in various surveys year to year with Utah. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is that we don't have some, you know, great dynastic wealth that you might see in the state like, you know, Massachusetts or Connecticut, right? People inherited it a long time ago, you know, um, 80 or more years ago. Like old money. Right. Less of that around Alaska. But another big factor, Cody, is the, the permanent fund dividend. It helps and create, you know, raises the floor and creates a more equal um, overall distribution of income in Alaska. And then finally, there would be an argument that dividends help create a ro- more robust safety net for low-income Alaskans. Um, permanent fund dividends, you know, help keep a, a better, higher floor. Now, I want to note that not everybody who was for permanent fund dividends um, believed in each of these arguments. This is what you might call a big tent coalition. For example, Governor Hammond, who is the biggest supporter and the most important supporter of permanent fund dividends, definitely the most important, he never liked the idea of creating more robust safety net for low-income Alaskans. But he liked some of the other arguments. So, I mean, there's different people who would believe in, you know, some different arguments. That's sort of the definition of a big tent coalition, Cody. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe let's talk a little bit more about the, the benefit of the PFD being raising lower-income households. Right. Because that seems to be like something that is pretty universally understood. Right. Um, there's a lot of poverty, you know, or let's call them lower income households in Alaska. And people often think of that in terms of the bush, Cody, in terms of rural villages. But I will tell you that, you know, um, we could walk tonight from the studio and I can show you, um, and it would not take a long walk, people who live in essentially in what I would call sheds. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, I mean, they, these are not that they're so totally dilapidated, but they're just, they're just tiny, yeah. um, places, um, uh, like I said, within walking distance of uh, where we're sitting here in the studio right now. So in here in Anchorage, not like by going, having to go to some remote village. So it's, it's very present, even if you're here in the largest city in Alaska. Um, yeah. And even in, um, one of the, we could also walk a little further from the studio to a house that was featured um, in a uh, uh, Hollywood movie that starred Drew, Drew Barrymore and, and John Kaczynski, right? I mean, there's some substantial um, differences um, in uh, wealth and income within walking distance of the studio, including definitely on the low end. 
So I guess to put some numbers to this, if it's a uh, a four person household, four four person family, and say it's a it's a two thousand dollar dividend, right? That's going to be eight thousand dollars. I'm doing that fast multiplication. Yeah, yeah. And so so that's eight thousand more dollars that that family would get each year right. that they rely on. Right. Well, the reliance is an obviously interesting question because of course um, they could use the dividend varies by a number of factors. The most important is bit, which is sort of the um, performance of the financial markets over the past five years. Remember, it's on a rolling average where it's a, a technically 21% of the total of you know made in the last five years. And Cody, you told me you remember 1979, but I think do know that you remember 2008, 2009 when the stock market actually fell. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you also remember even better, perhaps, 2018, when the stock market fell for the whole year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when back in the 1970s, it fell, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell two years in a row. Right? These kind of things can happen. And there have obviously been some really fat years in the stock market as well that you recall. Stock prices fluctuate. Um, financial market returns fluctuate. At least what I'm interpreting is that there is uh, a measure of unpredictability. Correct. And one of the things that's big, big that's happened in Alaska is our um, fiscal system, which is the, the, maybe a fancy way of saying the way the state pays for the services, delivers everything from um, you know the uh, paving on the Seward Highway, right, um, that you might use, or um, the uh, social workers for some people who, who who need it, maybe people you know, um, or for you know teachers in schools. Uh, children in the public schools, um, the state budget provides you know most of the money for all those things. It's actually it's sort of not well known. Most of the money for K through twelve education comes from the state of Alaska. The checks are written by local school districts, but they're using and they're, most of the money they're using to pay the checks um, is comes from the state. That's interesting. Little known fact. So teachers because, in in the Anchorage school district are essentially being paid by oil money. Well, and now um, permanent fund revenues, right? Um, Both. And there are obviously some other um, revenues the state of Alaska gets. Um, You probably have noticed or were aware that um, there's, you know, like a tax on beer, famously a tax on on, uh, state tax, also on tobacco and, you know, more recently marijuana, as well as you know, tax on state to state tax on motor fuels and like gasoline. Um, but I want to say another important thing. This is unpopular, but in fact, the, the people of Alaska, Alaskans, pay the lowest state taxes by far of any state in the country. Another way of seeing this is every other state in the United States, all 49 other states besides Alaska, have some form of broad based tax, whether it's a state income tax or a state general sales tax, um, or a number of states have both. Alaska is the only one that has neither. Before you say, hey, Cliff, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, New Hampshire does have an income tax. It just only applies to, to uh, interest and dividends and not to wages and salaries, but it does have an income tax. So what if we instituted an income tax? We might make, depending how you structured it, um, the the one the House passed in two, in two years ago in 2017, would raise about $700 million a year. That would help. It would. Um, state budget is me- measured in various ways. Think, usually think about it, usually about $5 billion, roughly. 
Um, that would be a significant factor. When we had an income tax before, which we did between, it was um, enacted in 1949 when Alaska was still a territory and repealed in 1980 in the first big flush of oil money, um, that income tax brought in but on, on individuals as much as 40% a year of the state's general fund revenue. And, to, and that you know was true until the big oil money hit and we started getting you know more oil tax and uh, oil royalty money. Kind of to switch gears, but not really. Um, how would Governor Dunleavy's $3,000 PFD payout affect the economy of well, Alaska? Would, you know, um, it has to be measured in like, in what context? This is sort of like me asking you, Cody, and I don't, I don't know what you drive, but I could say, Cody, would you like a new Porsche? And I'm thinking <laughs> the answer is probably, hey, yeah, Cliff, where do I sign up? <laughs> and then I say, here's the, here's the uh, check you need to write for that new Porsche. And I don't even know what it is, 50000 60000 You're probably not quite so excited for that Porsche. If you gave it to me and then gave me the check for it. Right. The, the car is great. The actual cost of driving it, not, uh, <laughs> or by buying the car, not so much. To put this a little bit more homey terms that everybody could apply to, Governor Denley's budget proposal or his discussion of fiscal matters last fall was essentially offering the people of Alaska a chance to lose 10% of their body weight while simultaneously switching to a bold and aggressive and innovative new diet of all chocolate cake all the time. And Cody- Some people like chocolate cake. Whatever, you've suggested to me that you're no longer a teenager despite your youthful enthusiasm. <laughs> whatever might've worked for you at age 18, I think you recognize even for you right now, you could either lose 10% of your body weight or eat chocolate cake all the time. You can't do both simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, but that was the fiscal plan offered by Governor Dunleavy last fall as candidate Mike Dunleavy. <laughs> I've also described it as a unicorn. The people of Alaska bought a unicorn online last November, and they're waiting, waiting, waiting for like FedEx to deliver it. And then on February, th the morning of February 13th, a box arrived, and it, it's there on their doorstep, and it's stamped unicorn. So they bring it inside the house, they eagerly open it up, but there's no unicorn inside because, of course, unicorns do not exist. Instead, there's a pile of manure. <laughs> so are you, are you saying that the that Alaskans will never get that $3,000, or are you saying, saying that, that they'll get it? They they Governor Dunleavy's uh, fiscal pl uh, plan offered last fall had three three planks, as I understood it. He um, promised giant sites, if it's $3,000, Mr. Kaliska, you're a piker. I, I recall $6,700, right? When you count in the back dividends, yeah, right? Yeah. Right? So $6,700 in a jumbo dividend, which a lot of people thought they would get in a check this fall, mm -hmm. right? You know, within the nail, $67, or look in your, your bank account online, there's $6,700. The so unicorn. What's that? The unicorn. The unicorn. Well, not, no, the, the unicorn, that's not the unicorn. Okay. Because by itself, that's not it. It's the other two things together. It's the three part package is the unicorn, which is sort of three-legged unicorn. Um, $6,700 dividend, um, painless budget cuts, you really wouldn't notice, and um, no taxes. It's that's the three-legged unicorn that can't exist. You, you know, he sold the people last a three-legged unicorn, but they, they open the box and it's not there because you can't get it. You can't buy it for any amount of money. <laughs> so what happens when 
we realize that this three-legged unicorn doesn't exist. Then we have to grow up, Cody. And so that, so let's talk about growing up. I got a new little sort of fork part analysis of why Alaskans are having a problem with this. So let's call it, I need a cute acronym, but let's use a, a series of, uh, of uh, cute phrases. Let's call it the Norwegian unicorn in a snowdrift uh, with a, a, a big plane ticket. So, uh, yeah, I think of these mnemonics. mnemonics. I'm a, <laughs> I like it already. I'm a former spelling champion, you know, because, um, you know, mnemonics can be helpful. So, anyway, um, the Norwegian part is value. We're the opposite of Norway. The people of Norway value the services they get. And in Alaska, the only service or only thing people seem to get from their state government that they value, seem to value is the permanent fund dividend. They don't think they get anything else that's worth it. They sort of assume they just don't value it. For what do you reason. mean by that? They don't, they don't value anything else besides the permanent fund dividend? Well, they just don't seem to think it's worth it to them or that it's the only thing they can sort of think for sure that they get or they really care about. What do you mean? What's worth it? That... They, that they they don't recognize the value of the services they get. Like, you know, if you live in Anchorage, you have Anchorage Police Department coverage. But if you like say, hey, you know, I'm going to drive out and, you know, go hunting or fishing uh, in the Matsu Valley. And you may be in an area that's covered by Alaska State Troopers, which are totally, you know, paid for by the, the uh, state of Alaska. You just don't seem to think that, you know, you, you need that, right? Or that like, hey, you, you're like driving along the Glen Highway, you see people speeding along, and you sort of think, this is a little dangerous. You don't recognize that it's the state troopers that sort of help keep that speeding down if anybody's going to do it. Yeah. We hope your reaction is, okay, jerk, pull out a 44 and put a hole in the window of the speeding <laughs> car bag. I recommend against that on multiple <laughs> levels, right? Yeah. But you know what I mean? If you don't have a trooper, right, or maybe hold down the speed. To hold the peace. Yeah. So there's... A sense in Alaska that people don't, a lot of people don't value the services they get from the state except the dividend. Okay, that's one problem, sort of the value. The second problem is um, I call fantasy or unicorn. A, a really problem is people sort of think that the services they do get, like the trooper protection um, or the uh, schools, right, you know, and the... Um, the actual roads themselves, right? The Seward Highway, the Glen Highway, the Parks Highway. They sort of assume that's like the air. It just sort of, or the rain, it falls out of the sky. That They don't need to do anything to make it happen. Yeah. It's just automatically assumed, you know, or like uh, uh, the ground, right? You don't, have to, you, don't have to, you don't have to like pay to walk around in every foot, right? Because the ground's just there. Yeah. Or, you know, you can just jump in the ocean and swim. Right, if you're near the they ocean. take it for granted. Right. So that's a fantasy element, and it's partly related, to, I, I assume, maybe entirely the fact that the people of Alaska have not paid uh, a broad-based tax since the early 1980s. And since the early 1980s, they've, you know, all, if they apply, um, get a check from the state, right, um, the permanent fund dividend. So that we've now, we've covered the value in fantasy or unicorn elements. The third element I sometimes call snowdrift. When I was a boy growing up here in Anchorage, there was more snow and less snow plowing and a whole lot less four-wheel drive. So a common phenomenon was people would get stuck more in the snow. <laughs> and they would sort of need, they would, 
people help push each other out of the snow. And, you know, it happened to me, right? You know, like, you know, actually, I went up and interviewed somebody on the hillside. And it was pretty embarrassing, you know. I went to interview this woman uh, about sort of, uh, you know, a story I was doing for this newspaper where I did really like a college. And I was trying to drive away from her house and I got stuck <laughs> in the snow, right? There's more snow up on the hillside, right, yeah, then yeah. and now than there would be down here in the flats. Yeah, sure. So she came out and helped push me out of the snow. And it was really a good deal because, you know, I was there and no night, right? I didn't like, you know, want to stick <laughs> didn't on Didn't know anybody else? Yeah, I lived a long way from the hillside, right? And <laughs> so, and that would just happen more often. And that helped, that reflected sort of more of a spirit of camaraderie it was probably particularly strong in the years right after statehood when people were sort of had this post-statehood glow, statehood coming in 1959. You know, this post-statehood glow of like we did this big thing and we're all in this together. And there was sort of also more of a sense, Cody, when I was a boy in the 60s, that we lived in this low population place way on the edge of the earth. Phone calls were super expensive. Uh, mail took longer. The fruits and vegetables were terrible. Right, they came this long way. And it was just more of a sense that here we are, we gotta help each other out in this sort of tough place. So like, you know, like you're like in Antarctica more, right? Not quite as bad. But in the TV was two two weeks old or yeah. you know, delayed. There's no live TV in Alaska till the moonwalk in eighteen sixty nine. So that is sort of that spirit of the snowdrift spirit has sort of gone away, the spirit of camaraderie. So there's less of a sense of, hey, we're trying to help our neighbors and we sort of have to pay a taxes for the society we have, we're living in, living with each other. And then the final problem Alaska has is also related to its reverse, with some of the problem that Norway does not have, which is that Alaska is a state, not a country. Um, everybody, uh, this venture capitalist I had breakfast with yesterday said 300 million people could move here if it was good, life was good tomorrow. And I put it another way, you know, um, everybody in Montana can move to Alaska tomorrow. Everybody in Alaska moved to Montana tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's not true. People in some in Ethiopia might want to move to Norway, but they can't like get on a plane and sort of flash and just say, "Hey, I'm a world citizen. And I'm here in the world, and I get to stay here." It's not quite how it works. So um, Alaska has, um, um, and the particular problem that I would talk about here is, some people who live in Alaska think that they're going to live somewhere else soon. Let's remember I asked you earlier the question of how long do you intend to live here? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that's, if you think that in 20 years you'll be living in the same house in Spinard that you've been living in the last 20 years, you might think, geez, you know, I'd, I'd like to sacrifice a little now to make Alaska a better place in 20 years. If you think that not just 20 years, but in three years you'll be living in a, uh, um, in a uh, um, on a golf course in a gated community in Palm Springs, you're sort of thinking, I'm going to sacrifice to make Alaska better in 20 years from now or 10 years from now. When Forget I can, that. When I can I'm just leaving be here tomorrow. Three. I'm leaving here in three. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, what I sometimes say, Cody, is Alaska's fiscal system right now is really set up for surgeons and oil company executives who want to leave the state within five years. I used to say that for months. Now, since the release of the governor's budget last month, I now say maybe that it's for surgeons and oil company executives who want to leave the state in two years or maybe six weeks or six months because of the rapid decline that I foresee. Um, and I say that because I have met a surgeon um, who made $5.5 million in net income in one year through work in Alaska. Now, Cody, you're, you're not laughing in my face. You know, your reaction is not like, gee, Cliff, $5.5 million. I, Cliff, I, I spilled that much last year. 
So that was not quite your response. Pocket change. There you go. Dude, you know, the assistant of my assistant's assistant, you know, makes that in a month, right? Um, but I was, I was surprised and happy by the surgeon's story for two reasons. You know, it's fine if people were successful and make money, except sort of two problems with this one history showed for Alaska. The first part was that he had made, done the same amount of work the year he like moved to Alaska, and so in the middle of a year, right? So you got to compare like year one, he's in another state, year two, he's he's partly in, one, in the other state and partly in Alaska, year three, he's all in Alaska. So you compare three years, the first full year he's in Alaska with the, the last full year he's in the other state. He did the same amount of surgeries in both years essentially, and he made $5.5 million in Alaska for doing for, for what he made, the work he did, $1.5 million in the other state. Cody, I'm here to tell you, he did not become almost four times as good a doctor by moving from another state to Alaska. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't it. Just like, you know, I don't think if you like, you know, moved to Mississippi, you become like 25% as good as a podcast host. You I'm know, just guessing. I've I've heard uh no, I agree with that. And I think that it um it applies to other careers as well. I've heard I've heard uh journalists coming from down in the States to Alaska because they know that they can get a uh, kind of a more prestigious title or or job, and then then they've elevated themselves, and now they're ready to go back to the States. Do they make almost four times as much? Um, I'm not sure about the payment, but, uh, but no, they, I but don't they have the title. Yeah, I don't think... I've, I've certainly heard of the phrase title and lose salary, Mr. Liska. <laughs> yeah, Maybe that might surgeons. apply here. Um, I will tell you, lawyers in Alaska make less than lawyers outside the state. Okay. Doctors make way more. Really? The reimbursement system... Especially doctors, physicians, and surgeons in particular make way more in Alaska than they do in other states. Um, that's a big reason why our healthcare costs are the most expensive in the world. Um, but another reason I was unhappy with that surgeon story of making $1.5 million in another state, moving to Alaska, making $5.5 million for the same amount of work. And I want to stress this is net income. This is after paying off the nurses, paying for the rental of the mental equipment or the purchase of it, paying the rent. This is the net Right, the net income. Yeah. The other thing that ticked me off is he came from a state which, like every other state besides Alaska, had a broad-based tax. So we paid a bunch of money on that income he made in that other state. We paid zero in broad-based tax here in Alaska on that five point five million he made in, in net income in one year. So Alaskans need to think clearly about what the real choices are, what the real trade-offs are, and who is benefiting now from the fiscal system we have today. So where do you stand on a broad-based tax? I'm for it. For it. I'm a probably going to start doing a lot more work for it. I would like to see a progressive income tax return to Alaska like we used to have when I was a boy and a young man. And what problems do you think that tax would solve? It'd raise $700 million, the one that, that I would favor. That would be a good thing for mm -hmm. the, our state. It would also make Alaskans care more about what was in the budget and to understand the trade-offs more clearly. Right now, nobody can say they're a taxpayer of the state. You know, really. So there's less ownership. Right. And less of a sense of caring about how things work. And it would really help people think more clearly about how the responsibilities and obligations of, of being a citizen, as the Constitution talks about. The Constitution says that they're rights, and there's also corresponding obligations for being a citizen of Alaska. So a little bit of a, what I'm gathering here is that... Because of the, the PFD, it has uh, given Alaskans kind of 
this uh, willful ignorance of of other things that are happening in the state. And the absence of a broad-based PAX, too. Okay. They both happened around the same time in the early 1980s. Both of those um, have... Um, the permanent fund dividend has done a number of good things for our state and citizens. But that, in conjunction with the absence of red dates tax, it has helped lead to this sort of fantasy element in our fiscal system. We need to get back to reality. So talking about reality, <laughs> um, so there are people who think that marijuana tax revenue is going to replace oil tax revenue. Uh, I've uh, said, what do you think about that? I have said that if I had a hundred dollars for everybody who ever asked me about that or told me that Cody, I could take my wife to a very nice vacation in Hawaii because I've, I've given presentations and speeches around Alaska. And I've heard that over and over again. It's just frankly ridiculous. Can it you just, explain why it's ridiculous? Because it's such a small amount of money um, compared to what oil money is. And um, it's like lotteries. A lot of people say, well, why don't we just bring gambling to Alaska in a big way and we can solve our fiscal problems? And I, it's sort of the same analysis. Alaska would maybe make a lot of money from either marijuana or gambling if we we're the only state where it was legal. But Cody, I don't think even you with your power could sort of nuke Las Vegas <laughs> or convince Washington, Colorado and all these other states to make marijuana illegal so Alaska could make the big bucks. Yeah. I don't see that happening. So is there in you know we have a relatively small market you know you know seven hundred thousand or so people total right and we're just not going to make big amounts of money from marijuana. Just, here's the people sort of start saying, dude, you don't know about my roommate. You should know how much he smokes. I'm saying it's just not. We're not going to make solve our last fiscal challenge by your you know the yeah your like roommate, roommate Chad isn't going to <laughs> he's not the, the solution only. <laughs> Chad is not the solution right. <laughs> <laughs> So Alaska's population is declining. Yeah, for two years in a row. And how much? At, at kind of what rate? It's not very large, but it's sort of hard to do. Normally, and I've followed this since the 80s, you know, population. I'm, not, I'm no demographer, Mr. Liska, but I've followed this. The way population works normally is the biggest factor is what's called natural increase, which is the excess of births over deaths. In a normal society, which Alaska still is, you have more people born than dying each year, right? So your population goes up in that mm -hmm. sense, of people who stay in the state, right? Um, and then a smaller factor is, you know, in-migration versus out-migration. But normally, the effects of birth versus, of natural increase, births over deaths, swamps the in-migration versus out-migration, all right? But Alaska has had such out migration the past few years over in migration, it's reversed that. We still have more births than deaths, but we just have way more people leaving than coming. Why are they leaving? The economy has been, in, I think a big factor is the, we have the longest recession ever right now. We've had 39 straight months of job losses, of less jobs every month. That is associated with the down, you know, a fall in the oil prices and, you know, the, you know, there's less oil production. And people have frequently come to, uh, increasingly come to understand, Cody, as well, that the decline in po population, the, the increased out-migration, is also caused by fiscal uncertainty. People can't figure out what the state of Alaska is going to do. Mm -hmm. It's pretty screwed up. So how do we fix it? Taxes? We need taxes. Okay, I got a plan for you, Mr. Liska. We need to bring back a broad-based tax, and I would favor a... Uh, an individual income tax um, paid on a, a graduated progressive basis, 
similar to what we the, the last Castle representatives adopted in 2017 and not far from, you know, what uh, the state of Alaska had, you know, from 1949 to 1980. Additionally, I believe we need a constitutional amendment that would both limit the amount of spending that could occur in a single year on a permanent fund earnings in the, in the conventional budget, but simultaneously also guarantee a permanent fund dividend paid on a sustainable basis. I do not think the Alaska legislature should vote on the level of permanent fund dividend each year to use a hip, you know, new term because I'm a, a hip new guy. <laughs> um, the Alaska legislature and the people of Alaska do not have the bandwidth to figure out each year what the permanent fund dividend is going to be in addition to all the other decisions that have to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then, it, and it kind of overpowers everything else. That was my point. Yeah. It swamps to use another, you know, metaphor. And, and that we got to get out of that. Yeah. I know there are a lot of people opposed to having the permanent dividend in the Constitution as a guarantee. It's already, it's already referenced in the Constitution, but just as a sort of like as a, in the spending limit, it's, in the, it's referenced. But it does. It's not a guarantee. I believe that the permanent dividend should be guaranteed on a sustainable basis, as well as have a limit put on the spending of permanent fund earnings in the budget. And finally, we need also some adjustments to oil taxes and also some changes to the state budget. Some of the Spending will go down in some areas, but Cody, there's also some areas that are not widely understood where the budget's got to go up. Uh, one would be capital maintenance and deferred maintenance and, and, and capital projects of in, in our the state's capital stock, like the buildings and the roads the state owns. We're going to see more and more potholes here, and that is not going to be good for your shocks or your axles. You know what I'd like to see What's is uh, buildings painted something other than beige. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that would help make them last longer, but at least look better. Yeah. Okay. And then another, is that is that why they're beige? Is they last longer? I don't know. It's a good point. <laughs> um, I was in a fourth floor building at a, talking at a business today, a fourth floor of an office building, and I was looking at, and there were some funky, not funky, but there were sort of the there were various office buildings I could see that were painted the same color. Uh-huh. And one was a state, but one was like a union. Right, but it was just sort of interesting. They had like the similar colors they were painted and sort of the similar looks. When you're on the fourth floor and you're sitting and lo- looking at the same look, same view at the same time, you sort of notice things you might have not noticed when you just drive by, obviously. Yeah. The other thing that we need to note, and um, I would highlight here, is just an area we're going to be spending money on, is the state's unfunded pensions liabilities. Cody, you could tell I'm a pretty shallow guy, don't know too much, and <laughs> I really shouldn't confess this, but I've written a paper on published it last year on the University of Alaska website on the unfunded liabilities of the state's um, teachers and public employee retirement systems um, funds. And this is the part that's probably truly embarrassing and you might want to you know, conclude this podcast right now because you're just so shocked. That paper has more than 350 footnotes in it. Um, so I know a few things <laughs> yeah. about this, but um, we're on a payoff plan and the way I try to explain it is you might have heard a few of your friends who might have gotten in a little bit of trouble with a credit card and had a, gotten a, a, a balance they had to pay off over time. Okay. Um, the state of Alaska is like that. It got its unfunded liabilities and it got it. So it's on a payoff plan. The only difference is the state of Alaska is on a 25-year payoff plan. And I don't think you can, Visa is going to give you 25 years to pay off the credit card balance, right? Um, the 25-year um, payment plan we're only about 20% of the way through it. Started in 2014, it runs to 2039. And the payments go up every year. 
And what happens when we don't, or if we don't pay and this then, off? Then it, we're just, the, the, the balance grows more and it just gets even bigger. And it's just like- We're screwed forever. Yeah, yeah. And so that's an example of something that people often don't recognize or that the, you have to pay it. That's one of the six largest items in the budget right now, in the current budget, right? We don't know what the budget that will start on July 1st for that fiscal year will be because it's obviously a big topic of discussion and debate in Juno. But the current budget we're on right now, it's one of the six largest items. So, um, Cody, we need substantial changes and we need a dose of reality in Alaska. And I'm trying to help. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> um, one of the last times we talked, you talked about this concept of Alaska as an owner state. What did you mean by that? Um, well, Wally Hickel is probably the person most associated with talking about this. There's an idea that Alaska owns some natural resources that would otherwise be in private hands in other states and sort of set up by the way the Constitution works and the Statehood Act works. And so the state of Alaska is sort of more responsible to sort of make the economy happen here and be uh, than it would maybe other place like Pennsylvania or, you know, uh, uh, or Alabama. Um, there's another concept that Hammond was sort of associated with is more the owner of people. And that's part of the idea of the permanent fund dividend. There's, that obviously is, a, is, is distributed in, as, as individual payments, right? And not so much as what Hammond all thought of, we need a bunch of capital projects to make the state better, like a lot more you know, roads or other capital projects built by the state of Alaska. So people in Alaska should think clearly about what kind of Alaska they want and what kind of Alaska, I shouldn't say they, it's one of me, what, what we want. And thinking about what the real choices are and, you know, what role in the debate or um, argument between the owner state and owner people, how that would play into that. All right. So I think we're, we're just about done, but I have one more question for you. So it's probably safe to say that you've spent a lot of time looking at the relationship Alaskans have with money and oil. Yes, what do you think is one of the most important things you've learned? The government is going to be heavily involved in the economy. It's really important to have the incentives right and to also think of how things will change over time and to think clearly about what the real choices and trade-offs are and to uh, actually give a damn and not be so complacent and proudly ignorant. Some people seem to be pleased about their ignorance. That's a bad thing for our state. Can you give me an example of that? Well, a lot of people, or at least some people, they seem almost proud to be, um, not have not read things or have a, a, only the most surfaced understanding of what we're really facing. And Alaska had an easier time when it had a bunch of oil money, you know, flowing in and having a fiscal system designed where all you're doing is relying on oil taxes and oil royalties to pay for everything. That system worked for a while and it doesn't work right now. And we have to think really clearly about what, how we're going to uh, address that. And the answer, it seems to me, is wrong if it's just, well, we're going to you know, cut the budget like crazy only just to like, you know, based on whatever the uh, oil production or oil prices are in a given year. We have to have a different answer. And I 
have offered that and it will continue to do so. Awesome, Cliff. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I, I hope I was able to keep up. I hope I was in, you know, as I said, informative and entertaining enough for you, Cody. Well, I, we talked about it before, or you'd mentioned it before, but maybe we could have um, ended this on you getting a tattoo. <laughs> I said, I don't know if I get it from you, Cody. I have no idea what your qualifications were. And I sort of thought maybe I'm, you know, maybe my wife were going might, to might get him when we were traveling through Sydney, Australia in 2015. Maybe we missed our window. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a cool enough guy to get along even though I don't have one. You know, just fake it till you make it would be another, like, motto for me. Yeah, you can get some henna tattoos. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Cliff. Yeah, good. Glad I could help. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 